if you are willing to out-iterate everyone, you will win. Might take you longer. You won't be the first, but you will be the best. And if you look at the success Apple has had, if you go back and look at all the stories of the early iPhones and all the different iterations and prototypes they did to get the iPhone completely perfect, the best companies today are the ones that iterate the most. And the best humans today are the ones that iterate the most. Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of Marketing Against the Grain, your show that tells the stories of how people and companies succeed in different and unorthodox ways. We are here to take you behind the scenes of how remarkable people built businesses, careers, wealth, and happiness by doing the counterintuitive thing. Before we get back to today's show, here's a quick word from HubSpot. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. Like try to remember the name of that guy you just met at a networking event. Was it Ron? Could it be Don or John or Sean? Yeah, that kind of impossible. HubSpot's new service hub can help. Well, with the service solution part at least, it brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. With an AI-powered help desk and an AI chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs and a full 360 view of every customer. So your go-to-market team can keep up on the pulse of accounts before trying to upsell or cross-sell. Also, you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. And you know what that means? Better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. I am your co-host, Kit Bodner. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Kieran Flanagan. And Kieran, we're talking about traits to help you succeed in an economic recession and downturn. Are you ready for this or what? Hey, I really want to talk more about the economic recession, but we're going to cover it from the perspective <laughs> of, you know, reframe it in an optimistic way. I love that you're optimistic, <laughs> <Yeah>. but <laughs> what we're going to talk about are traits that help anyone, I don't care where you are in your career or where you are in your business, be successful when things are tough. This is something that we don't get to cover that often. I think most of the content on the internet, Karen, is about hype. It's about over positivity. Things are gonna be great. You're gonna hustle. It's gonna work. And it's like, wow, it's, I think it's okay to admit that times are hard sometimes. You know, everyone's going through a very similar experience right now in tech. Unfortunately, some people are even losing their jobs. I think it's gonna be a tough 12 to 18 months. But hopefully what we're going to talk about is how you can kind of look on that in terms of a positive way, in terms of how you think about your career, your job, all of those kind of things are really important. And the other thing to remember is it will pass, right? If you look at history, we have had these times before, they have passed before. I think that we are getting ourselves like really worked up that this is the worst thing that has ever happened. <laughs> uh, it is it's really bad. But I think even just realizing that it has happened before, we've come through it, I think is you know a good thing to do. Well, I think that is a key point that when times are hard, it's easy to have a very short term point of view. Karen, I want to go first. Can, can I give you my first trait? Yeah, give it to me. Okay. The number one trait I think everyone should have or try to adopt or manifest more in themselves is being feedback obsessed. Feedback obsessed means you look outward versus inward. When you look inward and you get in your head and you think all about the things that you could be doing better, maybe the things you're insecure about, or even worse, the opposite, where you're thinking about like, oh, I'm just awesome at all these things. And I don't need any help on all these things, right? Those two attitudes 
are so destructive. The best way to move forward is to have an attitude that says, hey, I'm confident in what I know today, what I'm able to do, but I'm also very aware of my shortcomings and things that I want to get better and I want to continue improving. And the only way to keep iterating and improving is through feedback. You can't do it without feedback. It's just fundamentally not possible. And feedback can sometimes mean doing things or sometimes feedback means getting feedback directly from other people. And before I I get your thoughts on this, I want to tell you a story of a company that was feedback obsessed. There's a company out there that everybody knows and loves called Pinterest. It's a big way of how we discover things online today. In the really early days of Pinterest, the founders were trying to become feedback obsessed. And so you said, well, what what did they do? Just put like a survey out on email or or put a survey box up on the website? No, they wrote 7,000 handwritten letters to their users to get feedback and get that feedback in a much more intimate and detailed form. That is what being feedback obsessed looks like. How can you get connected to your customers or your users in a completely different way and in a completely unexpected way? That is the Pinterest story that I love. Kieran, do you agree with my feedback obsessed trait? Uh, I agree with feedback obsessed. I think the Pinterest story is a really good story of the companies that likely will survive are not just companies that can manage their burn and manage their money in efficient ways and get the profitability, but companies who stay really close to their customers, like customer centricity is going to be really, really important. And I think Pinterest have always been that way mm-hmm. and try to stay really close to, to customers. One of the few social apps that I think have done okay, maybe not that okay, because I own stock in Pinterest and I'm really, <laughs> really uh, way underwater. Sorry, but, like, but they had good earnings, actually. Yeah, you know, they you did. Saw, you saw a lot of those apps getting crushed with their Q3 earnings, Pinterest, Ethereum is really good. So I agree. I think feedback is going to matter more than ever. Matters all of the time. But I think really within the kind of next 12 months, next 18 months, seeking that feedback, how can I do better? How can my company do better? How can we stay closer to the customer? All pivotal things. And it's not just how to get better. The challenge in a macroeconomic downturn recession is that things become far less predictable. And if you're trying Mm. to build or grow a business, it's much harder to predict what revenue is going to look like, how much you should hire, how much you should spend, how much, you, how fast you think you should grow. When you are feedback obsessed, it helps you discover the changes in market perception and or problems in your business much, much sooner. It allows mm. you to get an early warning system to actually say, oh, we need to change what we're doing or, oh, we need to change these assumptions around how we're going to grow because we got this first line of feedback and we need to listen to it versus just like putting our headphones on and being like, oh, it's going to be fine. We're going to we're going to get through it. So the feedback obsessed is two benefits. It helps you get much, much better and improve, but it also acts as an early warning system for how you can actually detect real challenges and, and problems in your assumptions much, much earlier. Right. Yeah, you can see it by just talking to your customers before you see it in the data. And most of exactly. us actually, most of us kind of lean into the data. It's really good to stay close to your customers to figure out like what is problematic for them over the next couple of you know quarters and maybe the next year. Uh, the closer you can be to your customer and understand their problems, I think the better of a partner you're going to be to them. Look, we, uh, we all have become data obsessed over the last decade. And what I would tell you is that data is an output of emotion right? In these situations, you know, a a human has emotion, has sentiment, and then takes an action and that action shows up as data. So if you can go straight to the 
the behavior, emotion, sentiment, you can find out much, much faster than waiting for the data to come in. And so that is my pitch on being feedback obsessed. Kieran, I want to hear yours now. So I am going to go for perseverance and grit in that some of the most successful people are actually successful just because they persevered, right? And I think, <laughs> and I think what does that mean? What does that mean to you? Like they just didn't stop? They had deep conviction about something and they were willing to bet on themselves to make it happen, even in the face of like consistent rejection. And I think this matters when you are in a company that is trying to slow down and you have an idea, there's less resources, there's less budget, there's less headcount. I think it matters when you're a founder, when you're trying to raise money, there's less funding, people are gonna reject your pitch deck much, much more often. I think it matters when people are actually, unfortunately having to find jobs during this tough time. Mm -hmm. There's probably gonna be more candidates, less roles. You may actually get told no more often than you want, but really it's just like, how do I kind of persevere through those things? How do I continue to believe in myself, believe in my company and keep going, persevere, get up each morning and knowing that I am going to make, make progress on the thing that I deeply care about. And so I had a really great story. I wanted to tell one of my favorite stories. It is of the heartthrob rom-com star, uh, formerly <laughs> rom-com star, Matthew McConaughey. Oh, the McConaughey, let's go. Matthew McConaughey is like really interesting, right? Because he was a rom-com star. He used to earn about 15 million to 20 million per rom-com. I don't know if you caught any of his early movies. I did not watch them, but it's a really great life. Look, F Fool's Gold is a solid movie. I'm just going to say. There's Fool's some good Gold. Matthew McConaughey rom-coms out there. There you go. Kip uh, Kip likes the formula. What, uh, <laughs> so he, so he, he had it down to a T, 15, 20 million, take a shirt off, run around, be funny. And he wanted to actually do something uh, a little bit more deep. Like he wanted actually to get into films that he deeply cared about. And this is actually one of the things that happens in life. When you get successful at one thing, people won't let you try to be successful at another thing, which I think sucks. Same thing in careers. And so he had a script for the Dallas Buyer Club. It had been around for 20 years. Like this script had been around for 20 years. He was trying to get it made over and over again. Producers rejected the film a hundred and thirty-seven times, which is just Whoa. wild. He finally got financing for the film. The financer pulled out at the last minute, right? He had everything he needed to make the film, but his financing got pulled out at the last minute. And so what he did was he bet on himself. He really took no fee. He took $200,000 up front, but he basically took a fraction of his fee. His fee used to be 15 to $20 million. He took $200,000 up front. He actually did a deal so he could act get the points on the upside if the film did really well. I don't know if you saw the film. I did not see the film, but he basically- I did, it's down. Great, great film. Yeah, he lost 50 pounds on a diet of fish, tapioca pudding, and wine. And so he was really committed to that role. And the film did really, really well. He made $55 million back based upon the success of that film. And so I think it's a really good story of perseverance, right? It actually speaks yeah. to the fact that not only perseverance in terms of like, oh, people think about that as, well, I'm early in my career, I have to persevere to have some success. Here's someone who was actually very successful in their career, had carved out a really great niche, uh, was really owning that niche, wanted to pivot to do something that was more meaningful to them. The, you know, the industry would not let them do that. And so to actually make it happen, they kind of persevered, bet on themselves and took uh, less upside in the short term because they believed in the upside in the long term. And I think that's a really good lesson for everyone who is going through the things that we are, you know, going through in this downturn over the next couple of quarters, over the next year. I love that story, Kieran. And I and I completely buy into perseverance. 
And I actually think we have another story to tell. And it's the story of both you and I. There, the last economic recession in 2008 was really, really tough. And we were, you and I were at a very different point in our career there. We didn't, we didn't know each other yet. We would meet a few years later, but we actually were doing the exact same thing. We looked around and we said, wow, the, the internet is going mm-hmm. to be amazing. And it is going to change how people do marketing, how, people, how businesses work and operate. And we totally basically bet on ourselves and persevered to learn everything we possibly could about marketing on the internet, how the internet worked, how social media worked. We adopted early technologies. We were early users of Twitter and and all all the technologies that would come from this like post-2008 recession. And that was transforming. It transformed both of our lives in a way that I don't know that we could ever really explain to people. I don't think people would ever even believe us if they knew what happened on that level of perseverance from like that 2008 to 2012 kind of period of time where we just really put our head down and learn. I changed careers from being an okay paid software engineer to being a really badly paid marketer uh, (laughs) to to, to get into that industry. Downsized my house, had an okay uh, house, went to a really not very okay house and and basically didn't leave the house for like 24 months because I couldn't afford to. But to your point, it's really because, you know, I didn't want to have an average career. I wanted to have a great career. Uh, I was always going to be an average software developer. And I saw this thing, the internet, and I was like, ah, there's so much opportunity in there if I can just like focus and I can just really learn the things I need to learn to kind of build audiences, build business. So agreed. It's always a good time to bet on yourself when you have conviction about something. It's always a good time. It doesn't matter what the economy is doing. Like if you have that, I think you're always going to be successful. Perseverance is is a couple of things, right? Perseverance is not just sticking with something. Perseverance is also making really tough trade-offs and, and being clear on the trade-offs you made. You gave the example of like, look, I took a massive pay cut to go and learn something new that because one, I was interested in it and two, I thought it was going to be really big and important. I did the same thing. I was making no money. I was waking up at 5.30 every morning writing a blog post. I was just grinding it out. I was like doing research, writing something. I was like, oh, if I write something, I will learn it. It will force right. force me to do it. And I wrote, I don't know, 500 blog posts over the course of a couple of years. And wow, did that transform my ability to like learn, teach, explain all these new things that were happening online, right? And perseverance is not just sticking with something, but it's making a meaningful enough trade-off that you are deeply committed to the thing that you mm. believe in. I can't remember who said this. Maybe it was Jeff Bezos or something. I I tweeted about it recently where someone tweeted that you shouldn't have a plan B. And there's this famous quote where like plan B is plan A, right? I love that. Because if you remove all of the fallbacks, then you have to make the thing that you've committed to succeed. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I think in some cases, maybe a plan B is good. But Mm -hmm. I do like that as like, there was no plan B, right? Like I have to succeed in this. Or or I'm not going to succeed. The other thing I'm curious about, if you were if you were kept starting today, would you start grinding out blog posts, or what would be the equivalent of the blog post for today for 2020? I, I would I would have a YouTube show. Yeah, I would have learned how to become a YouTube creator. It's the predominant format of the world right now. We're live on YouTube. Go check out Marketing Against the Great on YouTube. Please subscribe. We'd love to have you over there. And it's much harder to create on YouTube than just writing. But I think YouTube is where I would start. It, it, the feedback loop, the comments, the discovery, you would just get so much better at right. you know, learning and teaching. And that's actually how you build real skill over time. When was the last time you read a blog post 
Oh, I read I, I read a lot of content online. But like uh, a blog, blog, not not like a Substack, not like a newsletter. I read an article on Medium yesterday. Yeah. Okay. I guess that's a blog post. All right. Yeah. I I, oh, I, I think I, I You're think still I using am, Medium. I forgot oh, about I, Medium. I'm a paid I'm a paid Medium really? subscriber. Yeah. Is it good? <laughs> I spent a lot of time on Medium and Reddit and all the dark corners of the internet that people have have forgotten or don't pay as much of attention to uh, these okay. days with the TikToks and YouTubes going on. So shout out Medium.com. I think there's some good content there. One last thing, Kieran. I want to tell you one last story and give you, give you something. Is I was at a concert last week. There's a musician named Zach Bryan. I was in the snow at Red Rocks, getting, which is an amphitheater in Colorado, getting completely snowed on while they were playing music. It was awesome. But there's a line in one of his songs that I think it directly relates to what we're talking about. And the, the line in his song, sorry, I pulled it up so that I could make sure I, I get it right, which is, where small vices kill your big dreams, which is mm. like a very powerful line, which means you want to enjoy something in the moment or you you don't want to sacrifice. And because of that, you can never accomplish the big, bold thing you want to do. And I think the story you went through with McConaughey was the perfect example mm. of like, hey, I'm willing to trade off like my reputation, money, lots of real meaningful things to me because I am in search of this big thing. And I would argue to anybody who's, feels like they're persevering but not getting to where they want to go, that is likely the thing that's stopping them is that they're unwilling to make the short-term trade-offs for the long-term reward. The early part of your career, I've given people, lots of people this advice, including my two brothers who both work in marketing and growth and work for free for the first part of their career. You should trade, in the early part of your career, you should trade money against opportunity. Yes. Like I would take a worse paid job if it actually taught me better skills and then in the latter part of your career, you should trade everything against the lifestyle you want and then the money you want to make, right? So you trade it you trade it back against those things. But I think in the early part of your career, I think too many people focus on like the salary. Yes. You know, oh, like I'm getting a little bit more money. And really don't think about like if you actually took that other role where you could learn other things, you would get like a lot more money in the long term, like very much similar to the story, right? Like way more, way more money in the long term but maybe a lot less money in the short term. So, Kieran, I want to I want to give you another one here because I think this is I think this is really important. It kind of it, it's kind of the the sister or brother sibling trait to my first trait. My first trait was feedback obsessed. My second trait I want to bring to all of you, our, our third trait for the pod today is be a world class iterator. And what does that mean? It means that you don't get stuck. It means that you keep trying, and it's not just perseverance, but it means like you test something out, you learn. And from that, you try a new version of it. And from there, you try another new version of it. And that, that series of long iterations transforms the end product. And I want to give you a story that I think exhibits this really well. If you're like me, you, you might have a Dyson vacuum in your home. And the Dyson company was started by James Dyson, who was an engineer. And he had over 5,000 iterations of the original Dyson vacuum. And he had worked and iterated and he had done all this work and still nobody would manufacture it for him. So he basically put up his house for collateral, getting back to the trade-offs of trying to chase your big dreams. But what he did is say, hey, I'm going to be my own manufacturer. I'm going to take enough capital to bring my design to life. And why did he have confidence to do that? It's because he made so many iterations of it that he intimately knew the both, not just the problem, but the solution. And all those iterations forced him to not just be an engineer, but to be a designer, to be a salesperson. He had everything invested in being successful. 
And I think 5,000 prototypes to get to a commercial product seems crazy, but that is how you get to one of the best-selling commercial products of all time. And I think Dyson is a perfect example of being a world-class iterator. Right. You know, the other fascinating thing about that story, we talked about this trait. I love the iteration. I think that's what he's a master of, like iterating 5,000 times to get to a prototype. And then the other fascinating thing, one of the episodes we did previously was why curiosity is a billion dollar skill set. Yes. And this is another good example because he literally was vacuuming and looked at his vacuum and goes, oh, this (laughs) doesn't make any sense to me. Like this could be way better. Like just like literally using your vacuum. And he's like, oh, I can do a better version of this. And I think he was a student at the time. So just like a a crazy level of curiosity to how, how they could do something much better than what already existed in the world. Well, yeah, it's, it's curiosity plus audacity, right? Right. Like, I'm going to go and di- kind of disrupt this, this way of doing things, the way that this vacuum, this product has worked for decades and decades and decades. I'm going to go and try to do it completely different. And I'm going to do it all by myself, right? And the reason he was able to do that is because of being a master iterator. He was able to take a prototype, understand what was wrong with it. And if you were willing to out-iterate everyone, you will win. Might take you longer. You won't be the first, but you will be the best. That is clear from the success Apple has had. If you go back and look at all the stories of the early iPhones and all the different iterations and prototypes they did to get the iPhone completely perfect, the best companies today are the ones that iterate the most. And the best humans today are the ones that iterate the most. And if you're talking about being a part of a really tough economic situation, the way you are going to come out the other side is say, hey, There's less money here today, but that's okay. I'm going to spend some time iterating so that when the economy gets better, I have a world-class product. And when I have a world-class product or service or skill set, that is going to be a game changer and completely change the inflection curve of my entire life. Okay, fourth lesson I have chosen for all of us, inclusive of me. All right, let's go. Uh, Maybe not you, but uh, definitely me and my (laughs) tribe of people who listen to me and don't always have... The power of positivity. Kieran makes fun of me for being a hopeless optimist all the time. He was definitely an optimist. I am somewhere in between. Uh, I have certain things that believe You're somewhere in between? (laughs) Somewhere in between. I would say I'm somewhere in between. I have just very certain things that really drive me into a... (laughs) into a place where I get really annoyed and grumpy. I just have like certain buttons that if you press or I'm just in that mood, then that's how I feel. Just but- for everybody watching on YouTube, Kieran is somewhere in between completely hopeless and pessimistic to very hopeless and pessimistic. <laughs> I, I like to like make sure that I've seen all of the things that could go wrong with something. I just like pull yes. things apart and say, well, here's all the things that could go wrong. But I think this is a really good lesson because... You know, if you turn on anything, <laughs> yes. literally anything, all you are faced with is like people, you know, bitching and moaning at each other and just like everything is terrible. And so I think one of the lessons that I really love is like from Bob, Bob Parsons at GoDaddy, mm-hmm. where he talked about the power of positivity. And it's really about how you reframe things. Like I think about this a lot. Like he was a Vietnam War veteran. So when he got back from war, he was like, it changed the way he looked at everything because really, you know, for, for him, every day was a celebration. Like every day that he could just enjoy that day was a celebration. I honestly have reframed a lot of the way I think about my life in that way. I had some uh, health problems a year ago. It really made me rethink the way I think about life. And now I just think about like, if I have a good day, it's a great day. Heck and I think yeah. There, and I think there's just like ways that you can reframe things that you don't look at the worst case scenario. And there's a famous story about him that 
He launched GoDaddy. It was 2001, four years after he launched. Company was really struggling and Bob was going to shut it down. And he went to Hawaii and he saw a, a kind of a valley. Is that the right mm-hmm. word for the person who looks after the hotel valley? And he's the, he said, wow, they just look really happy, right? They were just enjoying their life. <laughs> and he's like, the worst thing could happen if I have to shut this company down is I'll just become a valley and I'll have a really good life and I'll be really, really happy. And he reframed everything into like the worst case scenario. Like what is the worst case scenario? Actually, the worst case scenario is not as bad as you think. I will Never. just say that, you know, for some people, I'm not trying to be flippant because for some people, the worst case scenario may be really bad, right? But for the majority of us who kind of like think about this stuff, it's really not that bad. It's like, maybe my business doesn't do as well as I thought it would do. Maybe the career I have is like just a you know, one notch down on the, on the ladder for a little bit of time from where I thought it would be, like whatever that may be, but it's not as bad as you think. And I think that if we could all have a little bit more positivity, maybe Twitter would be a better place. <laughs> the world would be a better <laughs> maybe place. Maybe the world would be a better place. And like the worst case scenario is never that bad, right? And so I think that is one of the lessons that really resonates with me. And I think hopefully resonates with our listeners. I, I think I try to remind myself of this. It's better to see the opportunities. Like you're going to be more successful if you see something as an opportunity versus like as a problem. Now, I think it's, there is a balance I do think you have to be balanced. Like some of the best founders that I know, they're quite optimistic, but they're also like always paranoid. Mm -hmm. And I think there's like a healthy balance there. And I suspect it's hard to get that balance right, which is why for a lot of founders, that is a hard thing growing a company because you're constantly paranoid and trying to like think of all the things that could possibly go wrong. But always good to have that power of positivity, always good to be able to reframe things into worst case scenario, but particularly over the next 12 months, I think we're all going to need a little bit of that. There's a direct correlation between positivity and luck. If you feel like you're having bad luck, explain this. If you feel like you're having bad luck, (laughs) it is a direct result of you being pessimistic and not optimistic. Yeah. Optimism helps create luck. It puts you into a positive situations where good and fortunate things can come and happen. I look around and I see this every day and it drives me crazy, right? I will see people being like, oh, nothing good ever happens to me. I have the worst luck. And it's like, that attitude is why you have the worst luck. Luck is just the outcome of being optimistic and hopeful. It's just a way better way to live. I I 100% agree. I think that there is luck. I think certain people do get luck, but I do think it's because they are very positive in their outlook. I also think the other thing that creates luck is focus. Like when you tell the world or you're really explicit about what you want to do, the world can kind of bend to give you those opportunities. When you are unfocused and you are unsure, it is harder to see luck anywhere because you're not sure what you're looking out for. And I think that focus does create opportunity, does create those moments which feel like luck, but I think it's because you are like really explicit on what you want back from the world. You don't get what you don't ask for, first of all. And and second of all, like I'll give you, give you a really good example. Kieran, you and I were talking, I think, a week or two ago. And I was telling you this thing I do, which is every six months, I try to do one thing that has been on my list of something I've wanted to do in my lifetime and basically have all the experiences that I've always wanted to have. And, and you were like, oh, yeah, I want to do that, too. And then we started talking about things we could do together. Right. And it's like, if you don't put that out in the world, you and I just go our separate ways. Right. And, and instead, like six months from now, we're probably going to end up doing something awesome together. And in that moment, you will feel like, oh, I'm so lucky to be here and hanging out with Kieran and doing this thing. But it would have never happened if you weren't just like explicit in that, hey, I do this. Yeah. And do you want to do this with me? 
right? right? right. And it's like that inclusivity and that optimism really changed the game for how you experience the world, how you experience life. Yes. Yes, we will be playing in six months' time, listeners. We are going to be at Vegas playing the World Series of Poker. Yeah, I'm going that's, to that, that, that's what Kieran wants to do. And I told him I'm in. I said, let's do this. I, I don't know anything about poker. But the great thing is, is once we commit to it, I will spend from that day to the World Series of Poker trying I, to be the best poker player in the world. You know what? If you actually committed to learning poker, I would probably back you because of your photographic memory you have. That's a pretty great trait to have in poker. <laughs> pretty, pretty good trait to have in playing cards. Yeah. That is completely yeah. true. All right. I think we got one more trait that we both, we, we talked a little bit and we had one overlapping trait that we want to talk about, Kieran, which is investing in yourself. Yes. Right? I think we've kind of alluded to it. It's been kind of the underlying trait of a lot of the conversations we've had today. But there is a massive opportunity today to invest in yourself, to prepare for the next economic upturn, which isn't tomorrow, but it's not decades away. It's a couple years away, right? And all I know is you can be a completely different person in months. So in years, you can be a wildly different and improved person if you're focused on it. Yeah, I think one of the most famous is LeBron James. He spends reportedly $1.5 million every year on himself to maintain his peak physical performance. And I know he's been at the top of basketball for many, many years. He uses cryotherapy, hyperbar <laughs> hyperbaric chambers, right? Hyperbaric chambers. Uh, actually, one of the first athletes to ever use a hyperbaric chamber to increase oxygen levels. Has personal chefs, has trainers, spends money on research in biomechanics, which is just crazy. <laughs> Does all of these things for like physical, physical fitness and recovery. I know there's like, I know Conor McGregor was in an interview he did. He actually met with LeBron and LeBron took him through his kind of regime. And immediately after... Conor McGregor committed to spending the exact amount of money on himself each and every year. Now, we don't all have $1.5 million a year to spend on yourself, but I think the lesson here is it is always a good investment to invest in yourself, no matter mm -hmm. what you are trying to be better at. But I think always trying to get better at something and invest it in yourself is you know, always a great thing to do. And again, in the economic downturn, it is a great opportunity to figure out like how can I do better to your point. So when we come out of this, just there's way more opportunities for me because of the skills that I've learned. I love that. Now everybody watching listening is going to want to know, what, what do we do to invest in ourselves? You're like, oh, you guys are jokers. Yeah. You're just saying yeah, yeah. this. So let's, let, let's go through it. I think you and I both do a bunch of things to invest in ourselves. The number one free thing that you can do to invest in yourself is go for a walk in the morning. Shout out to Andrew Huberman. Mm. He, like one of the best things you can do for your health, regulate sleep and everything. If you go for a 30 minute walk in the morning, get fresh sunlight, vitamin D to get your cardiovascular exercise. In. It costs you no money and it will change your life over a period of time. Like that is by far one of the things that I do and love doing every day. And it costs zero dollars. Yeah. And it's a good one. Actually, I run in the mornings, but there's certain mornings uh, that I bike that I should actually start with walk. Walking. What, what do I do? A lot of my stuff comes from either fitness or work. So I wanted to get back into tennis. So I have a tennis coach. One of the most important, I think, investments that I've made in me overall was someone to help with breath work. I took on an acupuncturist recently, Raiden. I've invested actually a little bit of money in different courses that I think are really good to help me be a better yeah. writer because I absolutely love Raiden. So there's some of the areas that I have like most recently invested in, but I'm always doing something for sure. I know you're the exact same because we talked about this, but there's always something that I am trying to improve upon. 
Yeah, hot therapy, cold therapy. Shout out to Creature of Habits who makes this like oatmeal with supplements and protein (laughs) and everything that I eat every morning. Little things like that change the game. Yeah, I was thinking about getting um, a poker coach uh, because I want to improve my poker game, but I... I need like I need it to be more regimented because I just don't never have time to play, and so that's maybe the next thing I'll add on. Not well, I would, I, do, really I would get... do that with you if we're prepping yeah. for the World Series of Poker. We, we, sh- we might want to do that. I need to get my tennis game into a little bit better spot, and I can stop having so many lessons and maybe get some poker lessons. <laughs> <laughs> I love Kieran is a lifelong learner, and he and I talk about this stuff all the time. So the the knee jerk reaction, the the immediate reaction when times are tough, or to do the opposite of what we just told you, you would be you would be a pessimist versus an optimist. You would be complaining. You would be giving up instead of persevering, right? You would be insular. You would go into yourself versus seeking feedback from others, right? Doing the counterintuitive thing sometimes is not just being different, but is doing the opposite of your initial gut reaction and human response to something. And that's why we thought today's show was so important and so powerful. And if you can fight, and do these counterintuitive behaviors and traits, you will be transformed over the course of this economic correction and come back out the other side, not just at better, healthier human, but somebody who should be positioned to be much more successful in their career, vocation, business, whatever they are trying to do. Kieran, anything else you want to chime in before we get out of here? No, I think that's great. We will be here through the good times and through the bad times. <laughs> We're not going anywhere. On. We're persevering. We we love doing the show. Please subscribe on YouTube. Please leave us a comment on YouTube. We'd love to see you over on YouTube. We're spending a bunch of time there. We're answering all the comments over there. So please engage with us. Talk to you soon.